right, so we are, in light of our Genesis study, we thought it would be a great time to take a trip to the Creation Museum and the Ark up in uh, northern Kentucky. And so we're putting those plans together. If you want to go ahead and tentatively pencil your um, calendar, we're looking at July the 13th through the 16th, which is a Monday through a Thursday. And uh, I understand that we never can put together a date that's going to work for everybody. But hopefully, if you're interested in going, uh, this will give you some time to begin preparing. We're, we're trying to keep this trip as economical as possible. Uh, so, um, you know, even for a family of, say, four or five people, it should be somewhere uh, less than $1,000 or somewhere around $1,000 or something like that to take the whole family up there for this trip. So we're looking forward to that and very excited about that. So just wanted to kind of put that seed and plant that seed in your ear today. And we'll have more details about that on our website. And you can check for that on our bulletin as well. How about that worship, by the way? You know, I was just thinking as I was sitting there, what could we be doing that's better than that. I mean, I, I was. I mean, I was just sitting there trying to think about like, what else could I be doing right now that's better than this? If you're ready to get out the door already, something's wrong with your heart. Because I'm gonna tell you something. If you think that was awesome, what is it gonna be like in the kingdom? Can you imagine the worship services in the kingdom? You're gonna want to leave that. Think about it, guys. We, God's children, the family of God, the living, the church of the living God, we get the opportunity to come together collectively in one voice and worship the King of Kings every single week. Please don't take that for granted. It is such a privilege. It is such an awesome experience. And I know there's all these other different things that get in the way of our ability to worship. But I just want to put that into perspective for you this morning because I'm telling you guys, heaven's going to be amazing. It's going to be awesome. The kingdom. Genesis chapter 3. You can open your Bibles there. We're going to be introduced to a new character in the story. He enters the story quite abruptly. I was thinking about this from a perspective of the Jewish nation, the Israelites, as they were led by Moses out of the wilderness. Remember, God gave Moses the first five books of the Bible as he was there with him on Mount Sinai. And at that point and place in time, you have to understand, that's all that the children of Israel had were Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They had, they had the first five books of the Bible, and you have this serpent who jumps into the scene of the creation story right here in Genesis 3. And I'm just going to be quite honest with you. If all you had were the first five books of the Bible, you really wouldn't know a whole lot about this character. They were very much limited in understanding who he was, where did he come from, why was he there, what was he up to. Now, what is this serpent business all about? Now, when you look at classical art and you read classical literature... 
we have been unfortunately conditioned to think that when you see the garden scene where, you know, the classic Adam and Eve and they're standing there naked and they're standing under a tree and you've got this little green snake who's wrapped around the tree and he's talking to the, the woman in the ear and there's the fruit as she's looking at it. I don't think that has anything to do with what we're about to read this morning. I think that is a big misrepresentation about what's really happening right here in the Garden of Eden as this serpent, and I'm going to give you a fun Hebrew word this morning. Everybody say, Nakash. You got to have that hard H in there, Nakash. Yeah, there you go, practicing your Hebrew a little bit. Because we call him the devil, we call him Satan. And again, the Bible, as we look through the progressive story of Revelation, he begins to pick up these different names and they begin to apply different images to him. But if you only had the first five books of the Bible, he would be the Nakash, which means serpent. And we're going to learn more about that, that word here in just a minute. But I want to help build a biblical profile this morning of the Nakash or the serpent. And I won't be using that word Nakash too much this morning to distract you. We'll just call him the serpent. But in Genesis chapter 3, if you pick up with me in the story. Now remember, we, last week we talked about the creation of man. God placed Adam in this beautiful place called Eden. I believe Eden is the intersection between heaven and earth where all of God's heavenly creatures uh, communed and, and, and uh, you know, fellowshiped with all of God's earthly creatures. And it was this, this beautiful paradise on earth. And we know all of the descriptions that we read about in Genesis 2. And Adam was tasked to not just work the garden as he tended the garden with the Lord in the cool of the day. And was learning how to take care of the earth and have dominion over the earth. And, and the Lord wanted Adam to expand the boundaries of Eden. To expand the boundaries of paradise over the entire earth. He had given man dominion over the entire earth and then he gave man a helpmate this beautiful wife this partner for him to go through life with and go on mission with and we see this beautiful picture here at the end of Genesis 2 and it, it just simply says there at the end of Genesis 2 man shall leave his father and mother he shall be united to his wife they shall become one flesh and the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed and so God gives Eve away to Adam in the garden, the very first marriage ceremony, and man was set on his way to be the representatives, the image bearers of God on earth. What a beautiful picture. Now, we don't know how much time they were able to spend together in paradise. Some people would, would say that they didn't get to spend a whole lot of time together because the implication was that they were supposed to be fruitful and multiply. And when the Nakash, when the serpent jumps in on the scene, we, as far as we know, they have not yet had any. Scriptures really don't give us a time frame, but we can say that it was probably relatively a very short amount of time before this, this new person, this new, what I'm going to call the nemesis, shows up on the scene. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to give you five biblical realities about the serpent that I think will help build a, a better, more robust um, profile of who he really is and where he came from. And the first thing I want to share with you this morning, if you look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than the other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. And he begins talking to the woman. He said to the woman, Did God really say? Who is this guy? Who is this character? Number one, the origin 
and the nature of the serpent. Now, because we don't have a lot of details in Genesis chapter 3, we have the, the privilege of having the whole counsel of God's word and being able to look progressively throughout the entire scriptures to kind of build a more comprehensive profile of the serpent. And so what I want you to do is that there's going to be two primary places that we spend some time this morning. So if you want to go ahead and mark those right now, do that. I encourage you to turn to Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. We're going to be spending some time in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, and you'll see why here in just a moment. Now, all we do know at this point is that God had created everything both in heaven and on earth. He had created the whole host of heaven, including the supernatural sons of God, these heavenly beings. They're called holy ones. They're called morning stars. We're going to get into all of that language a little bit today. And so we know that the creation of the supernatural had already taken place, and then he created man in his own image and placed him on the earth. And so we know at the end of Genesis 1, God looked at everything that he had made, and when he rested on the seventh day, he was able to step back Observe everything that he had created, and he, and he gave it a, a qualifier. He said everything that he created was very good. So everything up until this very point right here, we have to assume, at least I would assume, is still very what? Very good. Okay? I'll get more into that here in just a moment. But this serpent is not like Adam and Eve. He is a supernatural being. He is a direct creation of God. He was one of the members of the heavenly host. And we'll get into that here as we look at Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah chapter 14. But I want to go ahead and jump to the end of the Bible. And you don't have to turn there beginning from just, again, full disclosure. Now that we have the whole counsel of God's word and we know the beginning from the end because God has given us from Genesis to Revelation. Let me share with you what the book of Revelation says looking back on the Genesis account. In Revelation 12, John sees a vision and he says, Now war broke out in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. Now don't miss that. Dragon is a reptile. There's the serpentine language here and we have a serpent in the garden. And then he goes on to make sure we know who exactly this dragon is. The dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. There was no longer place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down. Listen, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And then also in Revelation chapter 20... Uh, when Satan is cast into the bottomless pit for a thousand years, he, he is also qualified by the same language. They seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And so we do already have an idea when we talk about the serpent, we know that he is Satan. He's a supernatural being created directly by God who had a different role and his original state. And we're going to need to look at Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 to get a little bit more of a comprehensive picture about who he is. Now, just a quick disclaimer. I understand that not everyone would, would look at Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 and interpret it as talking about the serpent. It, it, they, these are very difficult passages to interpret. 
Number one, they're prophetic and they're also poetic in language. Number two, they're, they're talking first and foremost about human kings and rulers. But when you begin to read them, it's like the language shifts and you know all of a sudden, wait, this can't be here in Isaiah, a mere human. This has got to be talking about someone supernatural. And we're, and we're going to see in the language here in Isaiah 14 and 28, I do believe my interpretation is that they are giving us glimpses into a supernatural being who had a great fall from heaven. And that's why I do apply these scriptures to the serpent himself. Now, again, not everybody agrees with that, and that's fine. But I do believe there's very significant connections between both of these passages. And if you spend time reading them side by side, you will be able to pick up on those. So let's, let's jump in real quick. Let's look at Isaiah 14. I'm going to read in verse 12. It says, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, or morning star, son of the dawn. Old King James puts a, puts a Latin name in there. Does anybody know what it is? Lucifer. That's, that's not in the Hebrew. It was, a, it was a Latin translation of the Greek text that was not even originally in Hebrew. There's a lot of confusion about that. I'm okay with, with the title Lucifer, but it's not a biblical name. Just kind of, it really means morning stars, what it means. Day star, morning star. That's basically all that it means. But again, back to uh, Isaiah 14. There's, there's this supernatural being who has fallen from heaven. So we know he, he didn't originate on earth. He originated in heaven. And it says, how you were cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. And if you continue to read, I'll just go ahead and read for context. He said, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. Pick up on that language. Remember, the morning stars are these supernatural sons of God that was talked about in the scripture he says, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mountain of the assembly. That's, that's good language that you need to pick up on. There's a mountain, this mount of assembly. In the far reaches of the north, that doesn't mean the polar, the north pole. Okay, that, that's a spiritual term. He says, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down. Keep those sheol to the far reaches of the pit, okay? So kind of keep those, those words in mind and then flip over to Ezekiel 28 with me. And we're going to see another description of something that I believe is directly connected to the serpent. Look at what it says in verse 12. Now again, it says, Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God. Now again, what I'm... What I'm um, suggesting here is just like many prophecies have an immediate fulfillment and also a what a future fulfillment some prophecies are dualistic in their fulfillment i believe this passage is talking about a literal human king on one level but it's also elevating and, and talking about the supernatural power and force behind him who is a spiritual being i, I think that's a very healthy and, and sound interpretation and that's where I'm going to go. So this is what it says in verse 12. You were the signet of perfection. You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom, perfect in beauty. Now look at what it says in verse 13. You were in Eden, the garden of God. As far as I know, this is talking about Eden. Every precious stone was your covering 
He goes, sardius and topaz and diamond and beryl and onyx and jasper and sapphire and emeralds and carbuncle and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. Listen, verse 14, you were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you, you were on the holy mountain of God. There's your mountain language again. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked, you were blameless in all your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. Now, the reason I go through the trouble to share that, and we're, we're going to spend a little bit more time there here in just a minute when we talk about the rebellion and the fall of Satan. But I want to challenge you this morning is that what we're dealing with here is a supernatural being. Ezekiel 28 gives us a clue about who the serpent is. I believe he was an anointed cherub. He was a guardian cherub, a throne guardian of the Lord. If you read and you understand what's happening in the language of the Bible when you talk about cherubim and seraphim, these are mysterious, unique creatures. They are created by God. They're called living creatures in the book of Ezekiel and the book of Revelation. And even Isaiah has a picture of them where they're called seraphim. So you've got cherubim, seraphim, living creatures. I'm going to help you out here. This is talking about all the same type of creature. What was their task? They were assigned to be in the closest proximity to the glory of God. They're called covering cherubim angels. They were tasked with covering, providing a covering around the throne of God, being in the closest proximity to the glory of God. So you think about that for just a second. This was, they, they, were in, they were called to worship the Lord God. Remember, if you read Isaiah 6 or you read, I think it's in Revelation 5, both of these speak of the cherubim, the seraphim, okay? And at the same time, both passages say that they are saying continually, day and night, what are they saying? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. So these are, these are very unique creatures created by God in a very unique place in the holy space of God to provide covering. And, and you would say, well, why, why does the throne room of God need to be covered? Because if His glory breaks out, it's going to consume everyone around Him. And so they were given this task of being close to the Lord. Now here's what's interesting about these terms cherubim and seraphim and even the term nakash. I'm going to give you some Hebrew that may help you put, put together some pieces about the seraph serpent. Who are we talking about? In Isaiah 6, the seraphim who are crying holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That word in Hebrew means a fiery serpent. So the seraphim apparently are fiery what? Fiery serpents. Why are there fiery serpents hanging out in the throne room of God? I don't know. That's his prerogative. He created them, okay? They're mysterious creatures. But that gives you a clue because we call, the scriptures in Ezekiel call um, the serpent a guardian cherub. Remember, seraphim, cherubim are basically the same type of creature, 
So, so, so that's a, an image. He's serpent-like. He's called the dragon, but he's a fiery serpent. And remember, he's glowing. He's bright. He's called a morning star. He's called the son of the dawn. He's, he's got this beautiful appearance as, as all of God's angelic beings have. They're bright in their appearance and shining. He's called the shining one. So this gives you a clue as to who we're dealing with right here in Genesis 3. Now, let's talk about the word nakash. Interestingly enough, and I think it's worth going through this, there's three different types that you can, three different ways you can use this Hebrew word nakash. Remember, nakash means serpent as a noun. So we know that he's maybe serpent like. But it's also used as an adjective. And when you use the word nakash as an adjective, it means to glow or to shine brightly. All of a sudden, now we have another connection. They're not talking to a little green tree snake in the tree. They're talking to a supernatural being who is what? He's radiating brightly. He's shining brightly. The scripture says that even the Satan can masquerade as an angel of light. He has the capacity to put forth beauty and light that can emanate from him. And then when you use the word nakash as a verb, it means to practice divination. Well, that should get your attention because we know that to, to have the sin of divination is basically seeking an alternative way to, 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 to have knowledge and power independently of who? Of God. What is the Nakash telling Adam and Eve right here in this scene? Hey, I know God said such and such that you're made in his image, but he's holding back on you, he's holding out on you, and I'm going to show you a different way. I'm going to give you an alternative way to become wise and powerful and beautiful like me, but you're going to do it my way and don't do it God's way. That's basically what divination is all about. And that's why God forbid the Israelites to practice what? Divination. Don't go consulting the spirit world for knowledge and power and information because when you do that, you're not consulting with me. You're consulting with the devil. You're consulting with demons. And so all of a sudden, we begin to get a more comprehensive picture of what's happening in the garden, which is why I would contend with you that when Adam and Eve are there in this holy space called Eden, paradise on earth, and when the serpent approaches them, this beautiful light bearing, the seal of perfection, that he was right where he was supposed to be. He wasn't out of place. He, he didn't take them by surprise because they had been seeing creatures like him from the very beginning, all along. Because Eden was the intersection between heaven and earth. And so now we begin to see that he's on the mountain of the assembly, that they're here in this beautiful paradise called Eden. And so the serpent was right there, and it was very normal for them to have an encounter with this supernatural being because I believe there were other supernatural beings in the garden along with him. And so that's where the origin of the serpent comes from. It comes from the fact that he was a created being by God who was assigned as a guardian cherub of the throne room of God. He was supposed to be giving glory to God. And yet, rebellion of Satan, different choice. Number two, let's talk about the pride and the rebellion of Satan. So what went wrong? Well, let's think about it for a second. 
Put, put yourself in the scene. Here's the way I try to imagine. I mean, we're already looking at Ezekiel 28 that says that, that this serpent, who is the, the arch enemy of God, he's the, the number one nemesis uh, against God and his people. He was the beauty, the seal of perfection. He was the most brilliant, beautiful being that God had created according to Ezekiel 28. He was full of divine wisdom and power. He was a light bearer shining brightly. But his job was to give glory to, to God. And as God created man out of dirt and breathed life into him, Adam's purpose was also to give glory to who? And all of the creation was supposed to give glory to who? And I just have to believe that after a while, Satan started looking around, the serpent. Hey, I'm beautiful. I'm powerful. I'm full of wisdom. He's seeing everyone else give glory to God. Everyone else has got their eyes fixed upon God, the great God, the king, the creator. And he begins to have what we call a little bit of jealousy in his heart. Hey, man, I want some of that. Why can't I get a little bit of attention? Why can't I get a little bit of worship? Why can't I get a little bit of glory? And so what we see in the heart of Satan, it says that he was the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and beauty, until unrighteousness or iniquity was found in his heart. And that is exactly what happened, is that he had this iniquity in his heart, which led to violence and hatred and the pride that he wanted to ascend above all the other stars of God. He thought that he should have his place at the right hand of God. He became jealous of God. And so we begin to see not only that, but you couple that with the fact that God gave man dominion over the what? Over the earth. Don't you think maybe that made the serpent a little jealous as whipping rulers? Why is he giving this mortal creature made out of dust and dirt? Why is he giving him lordship and rulership and dominion over the earth? That's something that maybe I deserve. And so now you begin to see the jealousy and the pride and the anger and the hatred that, that really began to emerge in the heart of this angelic being. And you top that off with the fact that Hebrews 11, excuse me, Hebrews 1.14 says that all of the angels are ministering spirits created to serve for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. If you really want to add insult to injury, God's purpose for all of the angelic beings is to serve man. There to be protectors and servants and messengers for mankind, for those who will inherit salvation. And so you get this whole dynamic at work, and now all of a sudden Satan says, No, this isn't going to work. I deserve better. And you can see where the pride and the rebellion really began to well up inside of him. Arrogance and ego. Now... As I said before, we don't know really when Satan rebelled, but I, here's where I've come to land on this whole thing. I believe Genesis chapter 3, and let, let's, let's just look at it here real quick again. Go, go back to Genesis chapter 3. When Satan has this conversation with Adam and Eve, with Eve in the garden, did God really say you shall not eat of the tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the tree in the garden, but God said you shall not eat the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. That was a bold-faced lie. 
I think at that moment, here's what, I, here's what I've come to believe. What we have in Genesis 3 is the account of Satan's rebellion. I don't think he was rebellious up until this point. It was the I think what you read in Genesis 3 is a double rebellion. It was the moment that the Nakash, the serpent, the supernatural being who was tasked with being a throne guardian, a cherub guardian of the throne of God, who was tasked to serve mankind, it was the moment that he made up in his mind that he could take it no more, and I can't stand for this man to have dominion over the earth. It's something that I deserve, and so I'm going to go, and I'm going to tell him a lie, and I'm going to go ahead and bring sin and death into the world and destroy God's plan. I think not only did Satan rebel right here at Genesis, Genesis 3, but it was also the fall of mankind. It happened simultaneously. This is the origin of evil. The reason that we have evil in the world is again back to the whole tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There has to be a choice given to God's creatures because in order for God's creatures to love him, they must be free. Satan was free. He made his what? He made his choice. Number three. So we have the origin. We have the rebellion. All of this is taking place. Then we have the ruthless and the effective strategy of the serpent. He's crafty. He's subtle. He's beautiful. He's wise. He has information that Adam and Eve don't have. And he uses that information and that knowledge and that wisdom against them because he's feeding them subtle lies. And again, this is the way that Satan always acts. Again, practicing divination is always questioning God's authority, the authority of God's word. Did God really say? Did God actually say? Or maybe what God really meant was this. We're seeing this all over our culture and our society today. You know, I know God's word says this, but that was really for people way back then. How many times have we heard that in our culture and society today? I know that this is what God's word said now, but what he really meant to say was authority of God. This, a subtle perversion and reinterpretation of the authority of God's word that leads to destructive lies and heresies. That's exactly what Satan does. He's the master of this. Not only is he subtle and cunning and crafty in his operation but he is beautiful y'all know sin is beautiful it's attractive it's very appealing the reason we know sin is a beautiful attractive appealing thing is because if it wasn't beautiful and attractive and appealing to our carnal desires then we wouldn't we wouldn't want it Satan is a beautiful creature. He knows how to make things appear to be very beautiful, very satisfying. And of course, we know the end result, that it ultimately kills us because the sin will have its pleasure for a season and then will always lead to death and destruction. That's his operation. He's a liar. He's a deceiver. He's the deceiver of the whole world. He keeps people blinded in 2 Corinthians 4. It says he's the, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. He is the tempter. 
He's the accuser of the brethren. He's always accusing us. He's always tempting us to sin. He's always casting doubt and division and distractions and, and discouragement into God's people, into God's heart. He is the devil. This is the word, the Greek word, diavolos, which means he's a slanderer. He's always the one that's spreading what? Gossip. You ladies don't like to hear that, do you? Gossip, and men gossip just as much as ladies. What am I saying? God, that was such a sexist remark right there, wasn't it? That's terrible. We are gossips. And when we gossip, we act just like who? The devil. Because he's a gossip. He's a slanderer. He wants to backbite and backstab people. And that's exactly what he will do. The Bible calls him a roaring lion. He's always the discovery. Somebody to devour. How many of you like to watch Nat Geo? The Discovery Channel. Anybody like the Big Cat Week? The cheetahs and the lions. Isn't it so sad? Because they always pick off the little sickly one that gets away from the herd. Why do they do that? Because he's vulnerable. He's isolated. He's weak. He's sickly. That's what the enemy is always doing. He's always looking at a weakness. He's looking for a vulnerability in our life. That's why it's so dangerous for us as God's people to separate ourselves from the family of God and to isolate ourselves because if we isolate ourselves, that is giving the enemy an opportunity to pounce. If you're isolating yourself from the family of God, I can guarantee you that's from who? That's from the devil. There's never a good reason to isolate yourself from the family of God. He's a thief and the murderer. Jesus calls him the father of all lies. He was a murderer from the very beginning. But what about right now? What is, what is Satan's operation? What, what should we think of him right now? We know what the Bible says about him. We know where he came from. We know that he is the arch enemy of God. He's the, he's the original rebel of God. We know that he fell and that he was cast out of the throne room of God. So what's his present status right now? Well, I think he has basically a threefold status. He's called Beelzebub, which means the Lord of the dead. So he controls the demonic powers in the underworld. He's also called the ruler of this what? This world. So he controls, under, under limitations, but he controls the operations of what's happening on this earth with the kingdoms and the powers of this earth. But he's also called the prince of the power of the, of the air. So he has some power and control over the other heavenly beings, the principalities and powers and rulers and authorities who are operating in the heavenly realm as well. So he has a tremendous amount of power. Now, how should we take that? Number one, we should not overestimate our enemy and give him too much credit that's not because when we overestimate our enemy we become paralyzed with fear but number two we should not underestimate our enemy and disregard him as being powerless I think we need to have a healthy view of our enemy because we understand that he is a terrorizer we understand that he will keep us paralyzed in fear. That's not where God would have us to be. But at the same time, God tells us to be on guard and to be sober-minded and to be watchful. And so it's very important that we have a very healthy view of who the devil is. He's called a prince. He's the prince of demons. He's called the prince of the power of the air. He's called the leader 
of the angels. He's called a God. He's called the God of this present age in 2 Corinthians 4. He's called the ruler of this world. He's called someone possessing the authority over the kingdoms of the world. I find it fascinating that when we read the, te the temptation of Jesus... Satan comes to Jesus in Luke chapter 4. I think it's Luke 4, uh, 5 through 8. And he says this, To you I will give all this authority and the glory of the kingdoms of the world, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whomever I will. He has the power and the authority to do that. And he is called a Lord, and he is called the adversary, the devil. And he's called the evil one. Now, I know that's a huge profile that we're trying to, to build, but I want to bring attention to what Jesus taught us to pray. He said, lead us not into temptation. And deliver us from the evil one. That's what Jesus taught us to pray every single day. That should be a pattern of our prayer. And finally, we've talked about the origin of the serpent. Where did he come from? He continues pride and rebellion as he was cast out of God's presence. We've talked about how he continues to influence the nations and influence the operations of this world. We've talked about his present status and what he is able to do. Now, I want to I make a, a really quick statement right here. Satan is not God's equal. He's not God's equal and opposite. He's not the yin to God's yang. He's not the same, he's not a different side to the same coin. That's not Satan. Satan is a created being. He has limitations. He's not omniscient. He does not know everything. He can't be everywhere at all times. He's not all powerful. He, have to, he has to operate underneath the limitations of God. So we need to make sure that we know that. But we need to know also that the serpent has a final destiny. The serpent has a final destiny. In Matthew 25. I'm going to just share this with you real quick before we, before we close out. Matthew 25, verse 41. He's talking about the final judgment. He's talking about identifying true believers from those who have failed to believe. And then he says, And then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire which was prepared for the devil and his angels. And in Revelation 20, we see that at the end of the thousand years, the Lord cast Satan, the old serpent, into the lake of what? Into the lake of fire. There will be a day, guys, when there will be no more enemy. There will be no more adversary. There will be no more devil. No more Nakash. But until that day, we have a role and a responsibility. So I'm going to ask our praise team to come on back up as we sing. And here's your application for the day. Because again, we're trying to, we're trying to do a kind of a systematic understanding of who this enemy is and pack it all into about 30 or 45 minutes. And it's very difficult to do that. But I can tell you what your application okay? is. And if you haven't heard anything else the rest of this morning, I want you to hold on to this, okay? Go back to the picture of the vulnerability of the weak and, and vulnerable animal that gets separated from the herd and is he's, he's out there isolated, just ready to get pounced on by a roaring lion. We need to be on guard. And we need to make sure that we're not Satan's next victim. 
There's a good chance and a good possibility that there's going to be many people in this room today that are going to walk out of here today, and at some point in this week, maybe it's going to be this month, maybe it could be at some point this year, but some of us are going to become Satan's next what? Next victim. But we don't have to. And so the Bible gives us this beautiful passage in Ephesians 6, and I'm not going to read all of it here, but it is talking about how we stand against the wiles of the devil, how we can stand firm against the work of the evil one. And we do this by putting on the whole armor of God. And I'm just going to tell you real quickly what that really means. I'm going to break all that down to you in very simple terms. Listen to this. We can, number one, be assured of your salvation. If you're sure of your salvation, you are no longer vulnerable to the attacks and the lies of the enemy. He, sometimes he's hitting you where he's trying to cast doubt in your heart and in your mind if you're even a child of God. That's number one. You have to be sure of your salvation. God wants you to be settled in that and know that you have eternal life. Number two, we need to be grounded in sound doctrine. If I, if I got up here today and started teaching false teachings or subtle heresies, would any of you really pick up on it? I know a lot of you would because you come to me and you ask me questions and, you, and, and that's what I want. I desire you have every right and responsibility to test everything that I say from this pulpit according to the scriptures. But we are living in a day and an age where sound doctrine is being completely thrown out the window. And there are millions of people in the church that are being deceived. And don't, don't miss this for one minute. That's an operation of the devil. He is in the churches sowing seeds of heresy, our sins, teaching. We have to be grounded in sound doctrine. Number three, we've got to be quick to confess our sins. Be quick to confess your sins. That's one way you fight and stand against the devil by putting on the full armor of God. Number four, be vigilant in battle. We are in a spiritual battle. Never let your guard down. Number five, be persistent in your mission and in your purpose because if you stay busy about the Lord's work, we know that we're not going to have too much idle time on our hands because, listen, what is idleness? Yes, yeah, Satan's workshop. Idle time is going to get you in trouble every single time. But if you're staying consistent and persistent in your mission and staying busy about the Lord's work, it gives you less idle time to get distracted and, and go off the road. And here's the last one. We, be we have to remain fervent in our prayer life. Guys, I don't want you, and I pray that you would pray that I am not the next victim of the devil. He's real. It's a serious threat. He's a real enemy. He's been at it from the beginning, and he's not going to stop until the end, and we're in a fight. So let's remain vigilant and sober and watchful and prayerful. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for giving us a, some insight into who our enemy is. You, you, you are calling us to know who our enemy is, to know his strategies and his methods because it's real and he seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. And every person in this room is a target and we're not afraid of that in the name of Jesus because you have given us victory and authority, Lord, over the principalities and powers and, and all the spiritual forces of darkness, including the devil. But at the same time, God, we have a healthy respect for our enemy, knowing that he is always looking for someone that he can pick off and pounce on and lead astray and ultimately destroy and steal and murder and kill. And we are all targets, Lord, because we're your children. And I just pray for our church, Lord, that we would get on guard and that we'd be more sober and that we'd be more vigilant. Those out battle that is around us. And I pray it in